Good evening. Let's all wish Her Majesty the Queen a very happy 96th birthday and long, long may she reign over us. That picture taken earlier on today. And what an incredible woman she is, without doubt, the most respected human being in the world. Now, Overnight, there has been something of a sensational media row. And there it is, the Sun newspaper, grumpy Trumpy, world exclusive, ex-prez storms out on Morgan. What's it all about? Well, I'll tell you. Two weeks ago today, I was at Mar-a-Lago. I met with President Trump. I was there for a social dinner afterwards. I knew that Piers Morgan, with his new TV show coming up, would make a beeline for Trump. He has, for years, boasted in the British media that he has unique access to the president, that he knows him, that he's a friend, and he can dial his number any time he likes. And I knew that Morgan would play on that. What I also knew was that President Trump would probably, being the busy man that he is, just not be aware of actually what Piers Morgan had been saying about him throughout 2020 and 2021. And so, yes, I did put a dossier on Trump's desk. And here it is, all three pages of it. And all it does is tell the truth that Morgan has been saying about his so-called friend, things like he behaves like a mafia mob boss, that he is deluded boastful, gosh, petty, spiteful, an emperor with no clothes. He cannot be trusted with access to the nuclear codes and on and on and on. He calls him a despicable lunatic. And I thought Trump ought to know the truth. And that is what that was intended to do. Because you know what? I'm sick of people who get close to President Trump and somehow they use that position they use that position to benefit themselves and to do down Trump himself. So I thought a little bit of truth was the right thing. Trump indeed did hand the dossier back uh, to Piers Morgan and said it would be a souvenir of his treachery. Now, I think all of that was bad enough, but it kind of gets a little bit worse because here's the point about that Sun front page. Ex-Prez storms out on Morgan. So the impression was given in this newspaper and elsewhere that Trump had lost his rag and stormed out of the interview with Piers Morgan because he simply couldn't take it. Well, I tell you what, there's only one way to describe that news headline. It's very simple. It is fake news. And here's why. Here's the audio of actually what happened. <laughs> because I own the club, I'm sure it happened. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for a great interview. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. That was a great interview. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really so the interview's over. Morgan says, thank you. That was a great interview. Trump says, yeah, it's over. It's done. Trump stands off. He's off to his next appointment. And he says, turn the cameras off. There is no way. There is absolutely no way. No way at all that Trump 
stormed out of that meeting. That is a completely inaccurate, dishonest representation of what happened. Trump has responded with a statement. He says, Piers Morgan, like the rest of the fake news media, attempted to unlawfully and deceptively edit his long and tedious interview with me. He wanted to make it look like I walked out on the interview when my time limit of 20 minutes went over by an hour. The good news is the interview was taped by us as a means of keeping him honest. The interview was actually very strong and he goes on to say that he went out of his way to deceptively edit an interview and got caught. That's a big story, isn't it? Well, what are the consequences? What are the consequences of this? Well, there's only one recent example I can think of. It happened in 2007 when the Queen was doing a photo shoot. And the BBC showed pictures that suggested the Queen had walked out of the photo shoot before it ended. It was known as Crowngate, and it was a huge scandal at the time. The newspapers were full of it. And in the end, the boss of the BBC was forced to resign. I don't know what will happen here. I don't know what will happen here in this case. But what I do know is that there'll be many within Rupert Murdoch's media empire that will not be happy about what's happened at all. Many at Fox News, who over the course of the last few weeks have had Piers Morgan appearing on their shows because he is going to be doing a weekly Fox News broadcast. And there are so many of those presenters and producers within Fox that are big supporters of Donald Trump, and they're going to be simply appalled by this. And why would guests go on with him if they're going to get stitched up like this? Indeed, Caitlyn Jenner, who was due to appear next Wednesday with Morgan, has already decided that that's just not what she wants to do. You'd have thought in the face of all of this, there might have been some sort of apology from Piers Morgan. But no, he's decided to fight Twitter wars with all and sundry, including me. Now, I have been called many things over the years, but this is a new one. Piers Morgan describes me as a dodgy guy. Yeah, that's what he says. He sends this message to Taylor, who is the spokesman for President Trump, uh, and says, yeah, you know, <laughs> you've relied on some dodgy bloke in London. Well, all I can say, Mr. Morgan, is that if I'm a dodgy guy, the words to describe you I would not be allowed to use before the watershed this evening. So that's the full truth of the story. Yes, I did present a dossier to Donald Trump because I thought he deserved to know the truth. I thought he deserved to know that Morgan wasn't really his friend, just happy to use him as and when it suited. Now, I want your responses to this. Tell me, what do you think about this saga? Let me know, Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, Matt Boyle is the Washington Bureau Chief for Breitbart News. And Matt, you broke this story. It was kind of 10, 11 o'clock uh, UK time. You broke this story. You spoke to uh, the Mar-a-Lago office. You spoke to Trump's spokesman. Um, how did you first get to hear about this? Well, look, we saw the, the headlines out there, just like everybody else. We saw the 30-second clip that Piers Morgan released. And when I saw that, I called Trump's team and I'm like, hey, guys, what happened here? What's the real truth about this? They're like, 
hang on, trust us, this is not the way that it happened. And so uh, then a, a short time later, they provided the audio of the actual e uh, end of the interview. The clip, which anybody can go listen to, we published the whole thing on Breitbart.com, uh, is seven and a half minutes long. Seven and a half minutes uh, along uh, of an audio clip of this thing. Now, this is more than an hour into the interview that Trump has already sat for with, with Piers Morgan. So Trump had agreed to do a 20-minute interview yeah. with Piers yeah. Morgan. More than an hour into the interview, so Piers Morgan goes over by 40 minutes, Trump's team says, all right, time to wrap it up, last question. Piers Morgan just kind of keeps going, right? He keeps asking more and more questions. Some of them are interesting. Some of them are decent questions. Not all the questions are unfair. Uh, Trump uh, has, you know, some back and forth with it. He disagrees with with Morgan on some things. He agrees with him on other things. He he kind of liked some of the questions. You can hear a big part of the interview there. But the. the the idea that Trump like ripped off his microphone, stood up and stormed yeah. out of the interview, yeah. that's just blatantly untrue. And uh, again, I've never I, in, in the 11, 12 years that I've been doing this, I haven't seen an interview this badly mischaracterized and misleadingly and deceptively edited as bad as this one is. It's so blatantly untrue. That thirty-second clip that Piers Morgan yeah. released. Yeah. This interview. I, I mean, it is, it is, it, it is the most disgraceful kind of journalism. But just a final thought on this, and thanks for coming on. Generally, I've noticed that journalists tend to defend other journalists, even from rival publications with different political opinions. Is there some backlash to this coming in U.S. media today? Yeah, there already is. NBC News, CNN have all come out and criticized the way that Piers Morgan did this. CNN, which is his former uh, employer, uh, did a story about how he handed Donald Trump a win. Uh, and, and, and so, I, you know, the big thing I would hope, because, you know, I work for Breitbart, I'm a huge supporter of President Trump. Yeah. I, I would hope that President Trump doesn't, you look, Piers, you, uh, uh, Nigel, sorry, uh, Nigel, you were 100% correct uh, that that uh, with that with that dossier that you gave to President Trump about Piers Morgan, he he was just wrong uh, to sit down with Piers Morgan. Uh, I hope that President Trump learns from this and doesn't keep doing interviews with establishment. Yeah, well, media. I did try, Matt. I did, I did try to warn him. One final, quick, last thought: Fox News cannot be happy about this. I would imagine that they're upset. I haven't heard from anybody there. Uh, their their spokesperson just said that the they don't have anything to add other than uh, what uh, Piers Morgan had already said in the pre-released clip and a column that he wrote for the New York Post. And their their coverage of this has kind of been all over the place. So we'll see how that plays out over the coming days. We sure will. Matt Ball, Breitbart News, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening here on GB News. Now, to domestic politics. It has been a very tough day for the Prime Minister. Very tough indeed. In fact, let's go to Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Uh, so, Darren, in short, um, and you're there down in College Green in, in Westminster, in short, Labour were putting forward a motion for debate and vote in the House of Commons, and this was to refer the Prime Minister to the Standards Committee. Tell us what happened. 
Yeah, indeed. As you say, Labour wanting to see Boris Johnson looked into, if you like, by the Privileges Committee to see whether he misled MPs, whether he lied to Parliament effectively, which under the ministerial code would be a resigning matter. Now, when Labour put forward this motion, the Conservatives made it clear that they were going to oppose it, uh, that they wanted their MPs to oppose it. And in theory, given that the governing party, Nigel, uh, with a nearly 80-seat majority, they <coughs> should have easily defeated this motion. But then today, uh, this morning, it became pretty clear that actually lots of Conservative MPs were not prepared to oppose this motion. They wanted the investigation to happen by the Privileges Committee. They didn't want to appear to be covering anything up. Uh, many were prepared simply to abstain, sorry, in all of this. Yep. And in the end, the Conservative Party had to back down, knowing they didn't have the numbers. So quite humiliating, if you like, that the government had to do a massive U-turn. And then the measure has gone through in the nod. And so that investigation by MPs dragging this process out even further uh, will now take place after the Mets conclude their investigation and they reveal today that they're not going to give us any more updates on who's been fined, if anyone, until after the local elections in a couple of weeks' time. So this idea that this story, this scandal is going away, well, it really, really isn't. No, I know. I know some people at home are really frustrated and really angry and say there are more important things to talk about. But as you say, it's not going away. And just a final thought. There was quite a strong intervention today by Steve Baker, who's a very prominent backbencher with quite a lot of popularity, I think, amongst the Conservative members. Just brief us quickly on what Baker had to say. Yeah, Dee, just first of all, just to reflect what the Prime Minister was saying today, because, of course, he is in India. He's insistent he's not trying to hide anything. Uh, the people are, are, it's up to them to make their own minds up, but that he wants to focus on, as you say, what lots of our viewers think should be happening on the cost of living crisis and on Ukraine. But you then add to the fact that William Ragg, perhaps unsurprisingly, but more surprisingly, Steve Baker, who had only given him his support two days ago, came out today and said <laughs> that the Prime Minister needs to go, he needs to resign. Um, I mean, you know, that is difficult. Steve Baker, he's a Brexiteer. We can't really claim that this is simply a Remainer conspiracy, if you like. He is a senior MP. He's well-liked by the Conservative base. Is it damaging? You bet it is. Does it shift the dial? It does a bit. I, I, I think, again, there is a sense, just a sense at this moment in time, that the momentum against Boris, the uneasiness, the frustration is starting to build again in the Conservative Party. And as I say, given the fact we've got local elections, yeah. potentially more fines, the Sugre report and this new Privileges Committee investigation, it's going to be pretty tricky for the Prime Minister over the next month or so. No, it certainly is. Darren, thank you very much indeed. And, as Darren says, it's exactly two weeks to the local elections in a moment. I will have Sir John Curtis on. We'll talk about those elections and what to look for. We'll also have an interview with the Culture Secretary, Nadine Dorris. She's been interviewed. Uh, it'll be played out later this evening, but we're going to get a sneak preview of what she has to say about Alistair Campbell. I ask for your reactions to the furious row that has broken out between Donald Trump and Piers Morgan as a result of the dossier of facts, of truths that I gave to President Trump and the fake news front page 
on the Sun newspaper. Ryan says, the fact that Pierce didn't say these things to Trump's face shows he has no backbone. Gareth says, well done, Nigel, for exposing Piers Morgan again, for trying to jeopardise President Trump from running again. Adrian says, on the basis that Piers Morgan has blocked me and Farage, rather like Mrs Thatcher, not only tolerates but rather enjoys robust argument, I'd say Farage was right to inform Trump. All I was doing was giving him a truth, a truth that he wouldn't have known. He doesn't spend his time reading columns in the Daily Mail. He just doesn't. Julie says, well done, Nigel, for not letting your friend walk into a trap. I'd have done the same thing. I just wish he hadn't done the interview at all, but hey. Pat says, I owe you at least one drink for exposing Morgan. Well, it's not the first time Piers has had problems, but I don't think this is necessarily a great start. Now, two weeks from now, we have got local elections taking place in all parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, they may not be there for every voter, but they're still really very, very important. And yet, there's been almost no debate. It seems to be no national debate. I mean, locally, yes, but no national debate about them at all. And so I'm very, very pleased to say that joining me to try and unpeel some of this, to explain to you what matters around the country and where we should be looking um, on that morning of May the 6th is Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. Good evening to you. Good evening to you, Nigel. So let's start off with Northern Ireland. What, what's happening in Northern Ireland? Well, the Northern Irish election is probably the most important of all. There we have an election to the devolved assembly. And of course, the, um, the first minister from the DUP, Paul Gervin, resigned a few weeks ago in protest about the continuing checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland in the wake of the Northern Ireland Protocol that forms part of the Brexit agreement that Boris Johnson negotiated uh, with the European Union. The UK government has been trying to uh, get that protocol. Well, amended stroke, its operation made less strict. Uh, the DUP are particularly upset about the fact that this, they feel, makes it more difficult for people to uh, do economic business across the Irish yeah. Sea. Yeah. Um, and because of the way in which basically many voters in Northern Ireland feel that the DUP were double-crossed by Boris Johnson. Uh, they're blaming the DUP. And as a result of that, the opinion polls for some time in Northern Ireland have been saying that Sinn Féin are likely to emerge as the largest party. Not necessarily because Sinn Féin votes going to go up, they only expect to get about a quarter of the vote, but because of the DUP vote going down, the vote being fragmented between it and two other two unionist parties, the Ulster Unionists, and the traditional unions and the potential difficulty and the headache that that might face the UK government is will the DUP be willing to form, uh, to take the position of Deputy First Minister, which is the one to which they will be entitled they come second, with Sinn Féin taking the position of First yeah. Minister for the first time. The DUP might be reluctant to form an administration anyway until uh, the relationship with the European Union of the Northern Ireland Protocol has been improved from their point of view, um, playing second fiddle, albeit nominally, uh, to Sinn Féin might just be the one thing that makes it difficult, impossible for them to do so. So yeah, Northern Ireland might find itself in the midst of another political impasse in the wake of the election. Yeah, I agree with you. And 
Scotland has elections, local elections, Wales has local elections, parts of England have local elections, including, of course, all of the councils in Greater London. What are the most important things to look for across the rest of the UK? Well, let's start with, start with my neck of the work, Scotland. In Scotland, the elections are, that are taking place were last fought over in 2017. We use a system of proportional representation, but uh, uh, apart from that, it's fairly straightforward. The, well, there are two interesting points about what's going to happen in Scotland. Back in 2017, the Conservatives did very well north of the border by their standards. They got 25% of the first preference vote. And the elections were just six weeks before the UK general election, which, of course, in general was a disappointment for Theresa May. She failed to get an overall majority. But in Scotland, the Conservatives reached their high point mm. of the devolution era with around 28-29% of the vote. The problem they now face, they've got to defend that baseline. And the polls north of the border really since November, December, have been saying that the Conservatives have fallen behind Labour, that Labour may end up being the second largest party. And if that were to happen, it would be the first time since 2016. And we again we're back to an argument about which is the principal unionist voice north of the border and the fragmentation politically of unionism north of the border would, I think, be exacerbated. Yep. The second thing we're looking out for is how well do the SNP do? They actually did disappointingly in 2017. They did no better than they had done in 2012. They ought to do better. Um, and as a result, therefore, it may be relatively easy for them to at least make the claim that this is evidence that support for independence in Scotland is wise. Whether that claim will be right or not is another matter. But this is a relatively easy wicket for them. Yeah. Wales more difficult. The truth is that in Wales, outside of Cardiff, the elections are not fought that widely on a, a party political basis. But there were some disappointing results for Labour uh, in, in Wales. And for example, they failed to win Lionel Gwent to retain control of it. That's something they ought to be able to revert. To revert. Let's now come to England. Now, it's two very different set of elections. In London, it's a whole council election. All the seats are up for grabs for the London boroughs. Um, and you might therefore think that this is the place where we might get significant changes of control. However, London is already, for many respects, a one-party state. The Conservatives only control seven of the 32 councils in London. There are a couple that are vulnerable. One is Wandsworth, the other is Barnet. Now, Barnet, frankly, Labour should have won in 2018, but because of the anti-Semitism row under Jeremy Corbyn in what is uh. the most... Yeah. The country, Labour didn't win. They ought to pick it up this time. Wandsworth for the Conservatives is iconic. They've held it since 1978, often against the grain. And in 1990, uh, the hold by the Conservatives on that occasion, together with Westminster against the odds, enabled the Conservatives to persuade people that actually Margaret Thatcher was not an electoral liability. A, a decision that in the end, however, unraveled a, a few months later when she was challenged and lost the uh, premiership in the autumn. Outside of London, however, we have to be aware that for most councils, only one third of the seats up for grabs, which makes it relatively difficult for there to be much in the way of headline changes of control. And both London and outside of London, we should also remember that the 2018 elections, which is the baseline for the elections in England, was actually the best elect local elections for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. So the Conservatives are not defending a particularly good set of results. Now, 
given where the Conservatives currently are in the polls, we would still expect them to be losing ground. They were even Stevens with Labour back in 2018. They're definitely behind at the moment. They have been for, for months. But we're not necessarily talking about really uh, large changes of uh, swings to Labour. Yes. And given not, not all that many seats are up for grabs, we're not necessarily talking about stupendous Conservative losses even if the recent message of the opinion polls were to be verified. Yeah, and of course, with these sort of elections and the complexity, thirds and all the rest of it, you generally find the next day that all parties claim they've had a fantastic evening. Absolutely. Um, I think you can expect that's guaranteed. John, one final thought. I was very interested looking at the polling that came out overnight, the YouGov polling, that went sector by sector. Um, and you see that on areas like tackling the deficit and managing the economy, the Tories are still just about ahead. Although, on managing the economy, they were 30 points ahead a couple of years ago. Now they're neck and neck. But on everything else, like helping people onto the housing ladder, like dealing with poverty, uh, like uh, standards of living, keeping prices down, it would appear that Labour... It would appear to me that Labour is opening up a lead over the Conservative on economic issues. I think the answer to you, Nigel, is there are a couple of things going on here. One is, once a party is ahead in the polls, which Labour is at the moment, it's about eight points ahead in the polls, people start to say that party is better at everything. So in part, it, this is as it were, a consequence of Labour's yeah. increased popularity and the declining popularity of the Conservatives. But there is no doubt that on the economy, the Conservative and the cost of living crisis in particular, the Conservatives are finding it difficult to persuade voters that they're dealing with things adequately. The spring statement, well, people like the individual measures, but the reaction was this is an inadequate response to the pressures that we are facing. Um, and although YouGov uh, only find uh, on the economy it's still neck and neck, other posters yeah. are saying actually Labour are somewhat ahead. So certainly the Conservatives cannot say to themselves, well, if we can persuade the public that the real issue is the cost of living crisis and not party gain, but that's necessarily the road to uh, salvation and recovery in the opinion polls. The problem is, at the moment, the Conservatives face difficulty both on, as it were, the political froth of party gate, but also on the key substantive issue of yeah. the economy and yeah. cost of living. So there no. is no doubt the challenge facing Boris Johnson's administration electorally is the biggest that it's been facing ever since December 2019. Absolutely. Sir John Curtis, thank you for that summation of what's going on around the United Kingdom in what are going to be an important set of elections in two weeks' time. Well, 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 what the Farage moment. Netflix, we all thought it was booming, doing wonderfully, but suddenly it's losing subscribers. That may well be because people don't have quite as much disposable income. But there's another reason. Has Netflix become too political? Has it become too liberal? Well, Elon Musk, never out of the news these days, tweeted, the woke mind virus is making Netflix unwatchable. And into the process, their share price fell by 36% yesterday. Now, Nadine Dorries, Culture Secretary, this is what she said when she was interviewed earlier by Dan Wooten for GB News, and the whole interview will play out later on this evening, but have a listen to this. Alistair Campbell has a long history of attacking me personally. He's one of those men, I'm afraid, who can't accept women from my background doing well. He's, you know, quite abusively attacked me for many years. He hates anybody who is pro-Brexit. And so I'm afraid, for me, it kind of runs off my back like water would from a duck's. It's a bit like when I got my job. 
you know, when I was promoted to this role, to do to take those difficult decisions. I mean, the Prime Minister knew what he was doing when he put me in here. He knows I'm not somebody to, you know, to, to do the hard yards. So whether it's online safety or the BBC or Channel 4, he knew what he was doing. And I knew what I was doing when we and when I decided that we were going to move ahead with a bill that's been this department also for six years, the online safety bill, that we were going to move ahead with another policy that's been hanging around for years, which is sell Channel 4, because you know, there are many reasons why that mm. should happen now. And and on the BBC, and of course, I've become almost a hate figure of the left for doing it. Well, there's no holding back, is there? When the Dean Dorries is speaking, watch the interview in full on Dan Wooten tonight at 9pm. Some more reactions to the Piers Morgan, Donald Trump, I suppose Nigel Farage row too. Pamela says, I will not be watching Piers Morgan's new show. Well done for putting things straight. And he says, some people are desperate. They can see that Trump is coming back. Interesting. There were some polls out today that suggested that he's now a couple of points ahead of Biden if there were to be an election tomorrow. One viewer says, I usually agree with you, but you are practically Trump brainwashed. Uh, I don't really get that. I fully accept criticism. All I did was tell him the truth. What's wrong with that, for goodness sake? Sunlight is a great disinfectant. Simon says, well done, Nigel. Nice to see some people still have morals. Rachel says, Piers needed airtime and is scraping the barrel to get that airtime. Well, tell you what, he's certainly getting publicity. I'm just not sure that it's very good. Now, in a moment, I'm going to be joined by a guy who fought his way up became a Premier League footballer. It wasn't easy to get there. And then later on, it all went wrong and he went to prison. So we'll talk about what life's like going from obscurity to fame to disgrace. I'll be joined by former Premier League footballer, Mark Ward. It's the best time of the day. Yes, the GB News Tavern is open. It's time for Talking Pints. I'm going to be joined tonight by Mark Ward, former Premier League footballer who played at Man City, Everton and West Ham. Here he is playing in the Merseyside derby when Everton beat Liverpool 2-0 in 1993. Hinchcliffe can really veer the ball in with his left foot. Does it with pace and swerve. But McManaman only to Mark Ward. It's in! It wasn't really what he would have wanted, but McManaman just flapped at that and only succeeded in setting it up for Ward, who hit it hard and true past a furious grubbler. Well, I've got to say, Mark, well, what a goal! Fantastic. And I'm guessing in a Merseyside derby, that's got to be a bit special, isn't well, it? Yeah, it was, you know, for a scouser to score in the derby. Uh, it's a dream, it was a dream come true, you know. Yeah. And uh, a guest of yours recently, Tony Cotty, scored the second goal and we went on to win the game. It was a fantastic performance on the day. It was. Your story, it's interesting, isn't it? Because those that don't know football and they're looking today at the Premier League and they're seeing these young guys earning extraordinary sums of money. And it's like, you'd imagine, they're picked out as teenage talent and they're straight in and life's really easy. 
But for you, as a young lad that wanted to play football, it wasn't quite like that. You had to really fight your way up, didn't you? I did, yeah. You know, I, I was I'd have, as a young kid and they signed me an apprentice at 16. I'd be on £16 a week, cleaning the boots, the toilets, the terraces, which they, they don't do anymore. And uh, was let go at 18. Uh, and, that, and that was Everton, yeah? That was Everton, yeah. And, you know, eventually they bought me back for a million pounds. <laughs> but it was a big journey to go but back. Being let go at 18... Been your dream. I mean, mean, there's an awful lot of young people go through this heartbreak, aren't there? Yeah, and they're a lot younger now. You know, kids are there from a a very young age. So when they're told that they're not good enough at six, seven, eight years of age... Really? Yeah, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, at 18, I remember crying in my dad's arms when he got home. And uh, he said, stick at it, son, you've got all the ability in the world. He said, you'll get stronger, you're only small. And that was one of the reasons why they let me go. Is it, was being a being smallish guy yeah. a, dis, a disadvantage? Oh, obviously, yeah, yeah. But I got a lot stronger. With the strength, I got quicker. And I've always said this, I went and played non-league, a team called Northwich Victoria, and playing with proper men. Uh, so the two years playing in the conference as such, that made me the player I was. Was it, was it tough? It was tough, yeah. But it was, what, physically yeah, tough? Very, you know, you're playing with... I think the next youngest in the team was 28. So it's not like the academies now, you're playing against your own age group. You know, you're playing yeah. against proper, solid performers. You know what I mean? So it helped me out a lot. But in the end, you work your way back. Yeah. And you're playing, you know, you, you played for some great clubs, didn't you? Yeah, the Amers. Uh, fantastic club, 80, 85, 86 season. We finished third, played in every game. Should have won the league, really. Uh, highest they've ever finished. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool won it, Everton was second, and we pushed the two Merseyside teams right to the right to the wire, really. And uh, I'm proud of being a part of that team. It was a fantastic team. When you think two two players scored 58 goals between them, McAvenny and Cotty. Yeah, Cotty, you know, yeah. It doesn't happen now. Uh, so, you know, it's a terrific football team. And then I went to City. Uh, Man City. Yeah, went to City with Howard Kendall. Uh, and then that was only there 18 months, and then signed for the club. It will love. So everything. the club that got rid of you yeah. pays a million to get you back. Exactly. <laughs> but it happens in football. It but that must have felt quite sweet. It was, you know, and uh, I remember scoring two goals on my home debut. And uh, when you think I've been there since I was a baby, and then you, you're playing against the champions, Arsenal, and they scored two, uh, a terrific goal from 25 yards past David Seaman. And uh, I think... My dad who died a year before, he, I think he was there in spirit that night and blew two goals in for me. It was a fantastic feeling. So Everton's deep within oh, you, I yeah, guess. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, yeah. And they're struggling as well. I've got to say, there's a slight problem with the owner, isn't there? A Russian owner. Yes, Because, I mean, I mean Chelsea's, Chelsea's up for sale. Yeah. So what's happening with Everton? Well, it's, it's plain and clear that they haven't invested in the right players. You know, mm. the recruitment has been awful. Uh, and it's like any business, whoever you bring in, if they're not good at their job or they're not up for it, your business is going to suffer. And, you know, the recruitment has been absolutely dreadful. And, uh, you know, last night they were lucky to draw, uh, Burnley play tonight. And they've still got a lot of hard games coming to the end of the season. And they're sort of two-thirds of the way down the table. Well, they're just above, up just above the... Uh, yeah, so it's one of them. Uh, they say Everton don't go down because we've got the longest you know, history of being at the top level, but it does happen to big clubs. So it's a really crucial few weeks. It is, yeah. And it's, on the other hand, with West Ham, you know, they're going for European glory. And, yeah. uh, you know, they've had a fantastic season and David Moyes has come to the fore now. He started, you know, they've given the job at the start of the season, uh, two seasons ago, and he's just put a great squad together. And I feel sorry for him because he hasn't got a big squad, but what he's done, 
he's put a good team together and they've been very consistent and I think they can go all the way in this Europa League. Interesting. Final. Tell the football story that really touched me this week. And it wasn't Crystal Palace losing. But the, I'm a bit sad about yeah. that. <laughs> but the football story that touched me this week was Wayne Rooney. Yeah. You know, Rooney, a megastar, scored a lot of goals for England, went across to America, was immensely popular. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was over in Washington, D.C., people were talking about Rooney, yeah. immensely popular. Gets into management, there he is with Derby. Managing Derby County, all sorts of problems, yeah. penalties... They've gone right down the leagues as a result of these penalties. And Rooney presumably could go off and get a big job somewhere. Mm. And yet he said he's going to stick with them. Well, that's, to me, that's uh, susses him out as a person. Yeah, I agree. Because he's he took a job that's really difficult. And he's going to learn, you know, these, these couple of seasons he's going to have at Derby. And, uh, like, some, some players get the best job straight away. But, you know, he's learning his trade at a very difficult time and done a fantastic job. And I seen the clip where he was talking to the supporters saying, yeah, I'm not leaving you and we're going to get Goggs. I thought it was terrific yeah. for a guy that's been a megastar to accept where he is and say, no, we're going to fight back and do this yeah. was brilliant. Is football in healthy shape overall? Well, financially, it would be great to play now. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd rather have played when I played because I'd like to tackle and uh, there were some great characters in the game. But you earn good money. Yeah, decent money, but I was a spender, Nigel, and I think that's what happened to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't uh, plan for life after football, and a lot of players didn't. Uh, you know, and we weren't on fantastic money like they are now, but uh, it but was good, good money. Yeah, good money, and uh, you know that was the reason why I got into trouble. You know. So what happens, Mark? It, it ends. The, the the career comes to an end as inevitably it does. Yeah. And what you start to find you're running out of money. Yeah, because it's, you know, I finished it when I was 35, 36, went back into the non-league as a player manager at Alton. And 35, 36 actually is quite a good age at yeah. top flight football, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah, yeah. And now the pitches are perfect, so the injuries aren't as much as I don't think is in our day. Mm. They, they do say the game's quicker, I'll, I'll argue that, but at the end of the day, if you, if you don't prepare for life after football, if you're not involved coaching or management or in the media... It's a massive void that's gone from you because you have to be disciplined to play at the top level. You have to, you know, make yeah. sure you go to bed early at night because you've got to be able to perform on a Saturday. So what happens to Mark Ward then? Well, in a nutshell, I, I made the decision that I'll always regret and, uh, you know, I chose to rent a property out for certain individuals and uh, they used that for stashing drugs. Uh, never lived there, but I was I was caught up in a in a big operation with proper you know, villains, really, and uh, I always held, uh, held my hands up, uh, pleaded guilty at the first opportunity, uh, couldn't really say who I rented the property to uh, because I wanted to, when I got out of prison, to be, you know, not looking over my shoulder and protecting people. So these are bad guys, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was an operation on them called Operation Vatican, and, you know, drug dealers need places to store the drugs and... I made a decision, I'd just come back from Australia, my visa had gone out and I wanted to go back uh, and I made the decision to, to do that six months and uh, I was caught up in it all and I got 12 years really. And because uh, I pleaded guilty, uh, they gave me eight and I'd done four. What was it like going to prison? It was tough, yeah. The, the Liverpool prison was very tough, very brutal, very violent. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, no. you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, brutal atmosphere in there and uh, 
you've got to be able to look after yourself. And I just, you know, I realised I'd done something really wrong. You know, let me, myself down, my family and everybody else that knew me. And uh, what I did do, I'd done my time as, as well as I could. Done all the courses, got out there as soon as I could. And, uh, you know, for the last two years, I was in an open prison and I worked outside, so in the community. And Was it tougher on you being a known person? Everybody knew me, so... I think when you're in prison, you're just well, a number. Well, in Liverpool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're <laughs> just a number. And I'll always remember that num number to the day I die. And uh, so I was NM6982. But everyone knew me because I was the Premier League footballer. Yeah. But you don't know who the guy next to you is in the cell or whatever. So in some aspects, it was it was, uh, it was was easier for me. And how have you managed to pull your life back together again after that? Well, I just said to you, I was with a... Uh, uh, a person who's been on this show, Thomas Skinner, me and Tom, yeah. we played golf a few years back and we've we're just gone into a coffee Great business. Guy. Yeah. Bosch Coffee. Yep. You know, he might be, this might be Bosch Lager. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's just a great guy. He's over in Ireland. He was North. wonderful when he came yeah, on. And he, you know what? He's been on The Apprentice and he's been on MasterChef and, you know, he'll probably be in the jungle at Christmas. I don't know. But he's a great guy to work for and we're just trying to push our coffee all, all around the country. So you're falling in with the right guy now? The right guy who works tirelessly, you know, I've never known anyone works so, as much as him and uh, we live close to each other and uh, we're doing really well. So what, Mark, looking back on it all, you had to fight damned hard yeah. to get to become a Premier League footballer. Uh, you got there, you had a successful career, some great moments, you suffer, you know, I guess, public humiliation in the end by going to prison. What's the moral of the story for young footballers out there today? It's a plan after uh, your career's over. Now, if you're at the top level, you know, you learn a lot of money these days. And But you still uh, blow it, can't you? Of course you can, yeah. No, it's like anything, you know, I think gambling's still a big problem in football. Uh, it yeah. was in my day. And it's, if you're Were you gambling? Everyone did in the dressing room, maybe a bar about two. We always had a bet. We had a bookie in the, in the dressing room. Alan Devonshire was our bookie. It was just a footballer's disease. I shouldn't laugh, really. No, no. It was a footballer's disease, Nigel, it was. Yeah. And, uh, but now, because of the, the apps and everything else, we used to have to go to bookies to put the bets on. Now it's now. even easier, isn't it? Well, it's easy, yeah. yeah. And it's like in proportion to what you're earning. So, you know, I think that's one of the main concerns about me in uh, the football with the youngsters, really. Planning for afterwards, putting some money aside, yeah. being sensible. Your pension. All the things that young people aren't very good at doing in many, exactly, many ways. Yeah. But it's an important lesson. Mark Ward, thank you for telling your story Thanks, and joining me on Jeez. Talking Pints. Thank, thank you. you very much. We are coming up towards the end of the show. It is time for Barrage the Farage. But I know, I'm sure there are going to be some questions coming in for Mark, so he's staying with me. A viewer asks, here we go, do you think footballers are paid too much for what they do? Are they paid too much, Mark? I think some of them are, especially some of them Everton players at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an ex-player is always going to say they're paid too much. It's as simple as yeah. that. Michael asks... Have the big football clubs lost touch with the fans? That's interesting. Yes, I think they have. Like, I'm, I'm in uh, Lion Reeves tomorrow evening. Uh, Lion Reeves football club, so I'm going to do a, an after dinner there. So players of my generation will still, you know, go out there. But I can imagine, like, in a couple of years' time, the players that have earned millions, they're not going to bother going out to the social clubs or going out to the... Uh, so the grassroots gets a bit disconnected, I you mean, so. from... Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Because of the, the, the money that they're on and... You know, there is that big gap now between the fans and the players, and it's only because of the money. Yeah, it's a shame. 
Craig asks, does the possibility of a coalition government with Labour and the SNP worry you? Uh, look, all I will say to you is this. Um, I would have been very worried about a coalition of the SNP and Jeremy Corbyn. Goodness only knows what they might have done to us. Um, but Keir Starmer, and you may say he's boring. I wouldn't invite him for dinner on a Saturday night, and you'd probably be right. But maybe boring is what people are going to want after all the turbulence that we've been through in politics over the last few years. He has dealt with the left. He's not scary. Am I really, really afraid of a Labour-led government in coalition with the SNP? I'm not that afraid of it. And that's why the Tories have really got to get moving and got to convince people they've got economic answers because so many millions are hard up out there. Time running short. Robbie asks me, do you think that Putin's Satan 2 missile launch was a sign of weakness or strength? Uh, I can't quite work out the truth of really what's going on uh, in Ukraine. All I know is that he is desperate, desperate for a win before he gets to the 9th of May when they celebrate the end of the great patriotic war known to us as World War II. So um, maybe it's a sign of weakness, but I fear there's going to be some really horrid stuff happening in eastern Ukraine over the next few weeks. I'm done for the day. I'll be back with you tomorrow. <laughs>